Welcome to the Living Well Podcast. I'm Mark Hennick. Back to school. In years past, it's been a time of excitement for many kids. Uh, Maybe a time of some sadness, too, though, for the summer left behind. Yet there's always been this promise of a new beginning. I used to love going out shopping for school supplies with my parents when I was little. But that's all going to look very different going to school this year. Parents and kids are navigating this new normal, but teachers are too. Everything's been reversed. Our pandemic summer, uh, in which we've been in, in confines for so long, is going to be going away soon, as many of us start to integrate back into workplaces and schools. But there's no real certainty that the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. In fact, we still fear every day uh, of coming waves, of death, of restriction, and of even more uncertainty. Last week, we looked at the return to campus. Now, in this second part of our two-part episode on Back to School, we're considering the impact on younger kids, elementary and high school. We've had episodes on parenting already, but in an episode like this, we need to talk specifically about how this is impacting parents too, the back-to-school transition, and teachers for that matter, how we're all in this together, figuring it out as we go. I spoke with Dr. John Golden. He's a child and youth psychiatrist in the United Kingdom. He helped me to understand some of the more clinical aspects and impacts both that the pandemic has had on school-age kids, but also the impact that not being in school has had on their mental health and well-being. But first... Jessica Leahy is a New York Times best-selling author, she's a teacher, and she herself is a parent navigating this new normal. We talked about how the classroom will look and feel very different, of course, this year for kids, for parents, and no less so for the teachers and the staff who are going to find themselves on the front lines. She joined me from her home in Vermont. Jess, welcome to Living Well. Thank you so much for having me. So school is going to look very different this year. Uh, At the end of last year, it was clipped short, of course, because of the pandemic. In many places, uh, they tried to implement virtual learning, I think, to mixed success, depending on on how it was implemented. Um, And coming back to school in September, in fact, we don't even know entirely if everybody's going to go back to school or when. There's still a lot of question marks. So with all that uncertainty, what have you been hearing from parents and from teachers about what they're expecting and what they're fearing? Well, first... um from teachers, well, so I've been a, I was a teacher for 20 years. And the reason I'm such a huge, huge fan of Twitter is that I follow, you know, around 12,000 teachers on Twitter. And so, and as a profession, this was true a couple of years ago, I'm not entirely sure that it's true now, but a couple of years ago, Twitter, uh, teachers were the largest users of Twitter as a profession. So there is so much good stuff on Twitter with educators. And so between, uh, you know, listening to all those educators, what's really clear this year is that they're really scared of a couple of things, obviously being human guinea pigs and making their families sick. And how am I going to be a teacher and help with my own children? Obviously, that's a huge issue. But uh, a couple of things that you mentioned is that, you know, we were virtual at the end of last year, but that was once teachers had had the opportunity to build relationships with their with their students. And, mm. you know, that uh, especially, you know, the last five years of my teaching were with um, I was teaching kids who had a lot of um, 
a lot of issues. <laughs> I worked in an inpatient rehab for adolescents. So I was okay. teaching kids who were drug and alcohol addicted and, you know, had trouble building relationships often, um, had a lot of mistrust of adults. And so going into a virtual learning situation where you already have relationships built up, that's one thing. But now we're going to go back. Many kids are going off to high school for the first time. Mm -hmm. Then not only have they not met their teachers, they've never stepped foot in the building. Right. So like this is a whole new situation where there are no pre-existing relationships usually. And um, some really smart school districts actually are looping this year where they're keeping the kids with the teachers that they had the year before and just mm. moving them up a grade, which is easier said than done, obviously. Um, it's something that works really well, by the way, in, in juvenile court, looping with with judges so that you can keep one kid with the same judge right. all the way through. But, right. um, but yeah, that's going to be tough, obviously. And you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that teaching online is a skill. It's a skill that a lot of people go into specific training for. And it's not something that you just translate to the screen from what you do in the classroom, especially mm. for people who teach the littles. And that's all about, you know, touch and moving around and being with them and, you know, taking their emotional temperature. So I, um, I have to say I am so grateful I'm not teaching this year because I frankly, my trick bag would have been exhausted really, really mm. quickly. And it mm. would have been a really difficult thing. So that's the teacher side. Obviously, parents are scared for lots of other reasons. Um, students are freaked out. Um, it's it's, And the problem is, is it's not like there's a great answer to this. It's going to stink on various levels all the way around. I mean, in Boston, um, last year, 70% of kids had no contact with the teacher once schools went virtual. So right. that's a number I got that's from the Boston Globe. So, you know, kids who are poor are dealing with a totally different um, situation than kids who are wealthy and, you know, their parents can hire a tutor and they can have a pandemic pod and all that sort of thing. Sure. Now, do you think that there might be a, an impact on supply of teachers? You know, there are certainly a lot of teachers <laughs> yeah. out there, but if, if they're being drawn uh, away, no, there are better. not. There are not. We are oh, that's in interesting. A, we are in a, we have been for the past couple of years, especially in a bit of a, a crisis. Um, what there is also is a, an unbelievable um, uh, dearth of substitute teachers. So mm. you can imagine that if, in many school districts, the rule is, is if a kid shows up as COVID positive, then everyone has to quarantine, including the teacher. And so suddenly you're left in a situation where that teacher is now in quarantine or, you know, God forbid, sick. And where exactly are you going to get substitute teachers? And I don't know about you, but right, <laughs> substitute teaching pays so little. And so the idea that you would willingly put yourself out there in front of a classroom full of kids for barely above minimum wage is not really a, a great option right now. So mm. I don't know what's going to happen in terms of um, the number of teachers we have on Twitter. Anyway, a lot of teachers are talking about friends of theirs who you know, there was one woman I saw yesterday was talking about the fact that her husband, you know, has been in military service, has done all kinds of really brave things. And he just desired, decided that this was too much for him and he's retiring from teaching this year. Well, let's talk a little bit about the mental health and well-being of teachers themselves. Oh, let's you know, please. We, we've certainly um, uh, heard a lot over the last several months about Zoom fatigue. Um, teachers are going to be, uh, have already been, invited into the private lives, the private homes uh, of kids and therefore their parents too. Uh, and I would imagine uh, they might be exposed to things. We've seen increases of domestic violence, of alcoholism, of drug use during the pandemic. Um 
How does this impact uh, a teacher's uh, uh, mandated reporting if they're seeing things in the home on Zoom? Yeah, no, it's it's really, really scary, actually. So teachers um, speaking, just for anyone who doesn't know about mandated reportings, teachers are mandated reporters. Um, it's it's really under, this is under the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. Um, and what's really scary about this is that uh, the uh, reports of child abuse and neglect have gone way down, and that does not mean it's not happening. It's just that it's not getting reported. So um, if schools don't open if schools are not open for inpatient education, that's about 807,700 cases per year that don't get, that could go unreported this year. That's how many uh, uh, reports of child abuse and neglect are reported each year. Mm -hmm. So I'm scared to death. And as someone who has taught for, you know, this, the past five years of my life were spent taught teaching kids, a lot of them who had been through um, child abuse and neglect. And to think that, their lot is now even worse because there isn't someone to notice that bruise mm. or notice that withdrawn behavior, um, that flat affect. That really scares me. Or even to have the school as a safe place when nowhere else right. is. And, and that's the other thing. You know, there's a lot of it, it's really important to remember that a lot of kids don't come uh, uh, a lot for a lot of kids coming to school to learn that's a secondary sort of thing a lot of kids are coming to school and excited to be at school because they're safe there and mm -hmm. not only that i mean i wrote a piece a couple of years ago for the atlantic about the importance of um this is gonna it was so hard to get people to go on record for this it was an article about the importance of touch in the classroom and mm. you know I, I just read a book by um david j linden called touch and I interviewed this woman who, as a child, had been not just sexually abused, but sexually tortured. Her parents were in a cult and they basically rented her out. Um, she said that school was the only place where she got any um, sort of sense of social touch and what that was. And there was no other place where she was getting those needs met. So without, I think it was a librarian and her, and her teachers as a young child, without that opportunity to have a hand around her shoulder, to get a platonic hug that had no sort of e evil intent, that was the only place she was getting it. And she she uh, credits those people with giving her some sense of normalcy during her youth. And, you know, with that taken away, you know, I just we're going to we're going to see a, I'm positive we're going to see a mental health crisis in the kids that, um, you know, are going through this and, and don't have a way to talk about it, don't have someone to talk to about it. Even therapists right now are, for the most part, are, are doing virtual and it's not the same, you know, seeing a patient in the room and getting it, it getting that sense of their energy is not the same thing as, as mm. talking to them through a screen. So, yeah, you know, you mentioned therapists and therapists receive varying degrees, but, but almost all receive training on, uh, on compassion fatigue, on safe and effective use of self, on self care, because teachers you can, need that too, I think. Well, and this is it. And this is what I was going to ask is do teachers get any kind of that training? You're carrying a lot of other people's stuff. No, um, you know, for the most part, no. Uh, teachers' professional development and and support is uh, it's it's bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, generally speaking, professional the quality of professional development um, has not been great. Uh, also, 
you know, it, it, we can't even cope with the kids' mental health issues. You know, the numbers, I think it's something like 35% of um, schools, only 35% of schools have a full-time school nurse. Lots and lots of schools do not have a, a counselor. Um, and mm-hmm. if they do have a counselor, they have um, too few school counselors. All the, all the states all have limits for how many um, students to counselors they're allowed to have. And um, yeah, we, we blew through most of those ages ago. I think Wyoming was the best, was the worst. Um, there's, we're not even to the point now where if kids stuff can't be dealt with, there are not many teachers that have access. And right now, the other problem is, um, as a psychologist, you'll, you'll know this, that, you know, one of the things that feeds learned helplessness more than anything else is having control taken away from us. And Mm -hmm. during this process of deciding what the school year is going to look like, guess who the people, the people who have not been asked are students and teachers. The two key players and parents, I mean, parents aren't getting a lot of, I mean, parents have gotten to fill out some polls in some school districts. But if you think about the people who are most, you know, directly impacted by this, students and teachers are the two parties that have not been um, asked in any way what they should, this should look like. This is, you know, a major problem. And so that's fueling the, uh, mm. the sense of helplessness and lack of self-efficacy and all that kind of stuff. In our last couple of minutes, I'm just curious from you uh, around some strategies specifically that parents can use uh, to support their kids uh, through this. They'll be dealing with anxieties. There'll be scheduling issues. There'll be different logistics. So how can parents uh, best support their kids and, and themselves? Yeah. So one of the best ways that parents can support their kids is as helping kids find words to talk about some of the things that are freaking them out. You know your your kid best. If your kid is suddenly not eating well, if your kid is not sleeping well, if you know they're having nightmares that they weren't having before, having the ability to um, to talk about those things and say, you know, I noticed you haven't been sleeping. Is there anything you want to talk about? And then having the um, giving them words is going to give them power and it's going to give them ways of dealing with things. Another thing is um, parents can help kids by doing a little bit of um, temporal distancing right now, which means instead of saying, you know, if you get to go back to school someday, or if you get to see your friends again, let's do a little bit of when you get to see your friends again, Mm. when you get to go back to school, when things are normal again, Um, have these conversations about a time when things will um, not be like this. Because for kids, it's really important to have that hope, that optimism to hang on to. And giving kids a sense of hope right now is so incredibly important for them because that's when everything else sort of falls away. That's the thing that kids are going to hang on to, to know that um, tomorrow may not look as bad as today does. Well, if I think I think if we can give kids hope, then we've accomplished our job as, as parents. I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, Jessica Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jess, thanks for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hennick. Welcome to the Living Well podcast. 
Today, my guest is Dr. John Golden. John is a consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, England, and he's the vice chair of the child and adolescent faculty for the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. Dr. Golden, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Mark. Good to join you. So I'd like to unpack uh, a little bit with you today of uh, the impacts that the coronavirus pandemic has been having on children, young children in particular, uh, as we approach the return to school in September, whatever that's going to look like. Um, So what are you hearing from uh, especially the the most vulnerable uh, young people that you work with every day about the impacts that they're experiencing? Well, I think it's been a really difficult time for young people over the last few months. Uh, School is such an essential part of their lives, and school has essentially been closed since around March or April of this year. So young people have been largely uh, stuck at home during a lockdown. Uh, In the UK, the lockdown is slowly easing at the moment, which I think is a great relief for many young people and their families as well. And we're hoping that uh, children and young people will be able to get back to school in September. But in the meantime, they've been having to do remote learning, Uh, The quality of education has been quite variable between different schools. Some schools have really got their act together very well and have pretty much managed online uh, education, uh, almost as good as as face-to-face education in some (laughs) cases. But many other schools, sadly, perhaps those with uh, less good resources, have really not been able to uh, get things in place in the way one would like them to. So young people have essentially had unstructured days. They've been missing out on education. Um, and they've been missing out on peer relationships as well. So they've been, you know, often very stuck at home. And the worst cases are situations where there might be abusive environments at home. So there are situations where there's domestic abuse or physical abuse, uh, and young people really have nowhere to go. So that is obviously an awful situation for young Mm. people to be in. One of the most, uh, I think, important roles of schools or any safe space uh, are that they're they're loaded with gatekeepers, people who can be the first to notice if there might be problems, for example, at home uh, with respect to domestic violence or child abuse, uh, or if that child might be struggling with a mental illness or be suicidal. Uh, or, or what what would be the mental health impacts that we might expect uh, from not being able to necessarily see kids struggling uh, as we used to be able to do when we return to school? Well, I think one of the difficulties, Mark, over the last few months is that many young people with mental health difficulties have kind of gone under the radar. Mm. So they haven't been presenting to CAM services. CAMS is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services in the UK. And they haven't been presenting. They've been worried about catching coronavirus. Mm. They've been worried that uh, resources are overwhelmed already, so they shouldn't sort of trouble their local service with their depression or their anxiety. But what we've really been trying to encourage is business as usual as far as possible. Mm. A lot of things have been done remotely. via video links and so on, excuse me, Um, and uh, young people have been able to access normal services uh, at times, but as I say, often they've they've tended not to, uh, to present themselves. So problems have been kind of stored up, and the ones that are presenting are are the most severe uh, cases often. So we've seen some sadly very uh, suicidal teenagers presenting with quite serious self-harm, sometimes with significant trauma, uh, in the family or in the background, and also uh, neurodevelopmental conditions are presenting, again, quite late. So young people with autism uh, on the autism spectrum are sometimes presenting with quite severe anxiety, depression, self-harm, mm. really not managing at all well. So it's been a very difficult time for young people. And we do think that things are somewhat going to be stored up for the future. Mm-hmm. So as things start to return gradually to a more normal situation, it's quite likely that young people who have been very stressed by 
being stuck at home or not being able to go to school will present with uh, significant difficulties in the coming months. Do you think, and I'm not familiar with any research on this yet, it's probably too soon, but this kind of prolonged, uh, protracted exposure uh, to hypervigilance, to anxiety, to uh, even potential, potentially otherwise benign symptoms like uh, like a cough or a sneeze or, or uh, momentary difficulty breathing, now all of a sudden is associated in many people with the prospect of death, uh, and that could be traumatic. You know, if I have if I'm having a, an allergic reaction to some kind, I see the news every day of the death ticker of people dying from COVID. That could be potentially be traumatic for people. So, do you see this? impacting uh, kids' development on the long term, uh, you know, from a neuroplasticity perspective of being in this environment of heightened anxiety and fear of death for such a long time, uh, will they spring back as easily when things go back to whatever the next normal is? Well, I don't think things are ever going to be quite the same way uh, again. Um, I think young people growing up now, first of all, they've missed a significant chunk of their education. And that's one of the reasons why I do hope they can get back to school as soon as possible. Uh, As you say, there's no clear research on what is exactly happening to their brains uh, during this pandemic, obviously, and and there will be quite a bit of research going on at the moment, follow-up of how, in fact, I'm involved in a study at the moment where we're looking at presentations of young people with self-harm prior to the pandemic and subsequent to the pandemic. And we're seeing, you know, some of the differences there, as I was saying earlier, that uh, more severe presentations often. But as I was saying, I don't think things will ever quite get back to how they were before the pandemic. I think we're all going to be working more remotely. I think people are going to have a sort of inbuilt anxiety about perhaps being in in nightclubs or uh, very crowded places. I I heard some young people interviewed the other day and they were saying that the sort of the attraction of going to a sweaty nightclub and being packed in with all their friends has kind of waned somewhat Mm -hmm. now for them and they would rather be sort of outdoors with their friends, that kind of thing. So I think our attitudes are going to evolve. Uh, We're going to be wearing masks probably uh, for at least the next few months. I think we've got used to sort of not shaking hands uh, not hugging people that we that we meet up with this kind of thing, keeping a little bit more of a social distance or physical distance. So mm. I think these attitudes and w- ways that we've been modifying our behavior over the last few months are likely to carry on for the foreseeable future. Sure. H- habituation is a powerful and adaptive function. We get used to it and then we find other ways to be happy within the context, it seems. Um, Now, you're head of a a psychiatric unit in a children's hospital. Um, So in that particular context, how have you been seeing uh, or how's it been working? You know, uh, psychiatric units, uh, having been uh, an adolescent myself who who spent quite a bit of time on them, um, they're not always, you know, it's not like going to camp. Uh, They can be somewhat challenging environments uh, at the best of times. Um, So how has that been impacting inpatient care, uh, all of the lockdowns and quarantine? quarantine orders and and physical and social distancing? Well, it has been having a significant impact on uh, inpatient units. So inpatient units have been trying to manage patients remotely as far as possible. But obviously, the fact that a young person needs to be an inpatient makes that a lot harder. But where possible, patients have been on leave and and been managing their sort of clinical uh, encounters uh, via uh, video links and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Staff in inpatient units have to wear PPE where appropriate. Uh, we are testing young people before they come in and their families. They're having uh, one parent visiting rather than both or 
you know, other relatives. We're trying to limit the amount of people that are visiting. Uh, people are paying, obviously, close attention to infectious control, infection control procedures, washing hands, this kind of thing. So the atmosphere on uh, young people's units is quite different. The staff are wearing masks uh, as part of uh, everyday routine. Young people are finding that quite difficult. Um, there are certain... Um, uh, assessments that we do, such as the ADOS assessment, which needs to be face-to-face -face, uh, to check whether a young person is on the autism spectrum, for example. And when the uh, interviewer is wearing a mask, that makes the whole assessment a great deal harder. So there have been lots of adaptations, really, and we're thinking about how best we can manage things. Uh, but I would certainly say that it's not been business as usual. And the ones that have actually needed to, to stay in or get admitted tend to be more severe cases, so very significant cases, mm. sadly, uh, of self-harm, uh, of other presentations as well, such as early onset psychosis or severe OCD, mm -hmm. uh, or young people on the autism spectrum who have decompensated uh, under the significant stress that many people are under at the moment. Mm. Now, you mentioned as well, of course, the fear that I think everybody has experienced uh, of going to hospital in this kind of environment, and, and we've been encouraged not to go to hospital unless ab absolutely necessary, um, both from the patient perspective but also the the um, emergency room uh, perspective, uh, is there a concern that we're not going to be catching people, especially young people, in crisis uh, either at all or early enough anymore if they're either hesitant to go to emergency room in the first place or, uh, as we've heard many, many times, they go to emergency room and don't get admitted for a variety of reasons or there's a, there's a hesitation uh, to bring them into hospital if they're, if they're uh, presenting symptoms, for example, suicidality, aren't acute enough. Is there a concern that we're going to see a spike in suicide uh, or suicidal ideation following the, the pandemic? Um, I think there is a concern about that. We don't know exactly what the figures will show, but there is some concern about that. Um, I think in general, one tries to manage young people with mental health difficulties out of hospital. So mm. uh, the community services are trying to function as best they can. So there's no... Um, I'm not overly concerned that young people are not getting admitted uh, during the pandemic who should do. I mean, that that, that could happen in a certain number of cases. Um Sorry, I'm not answering that very well. Um, do you want to just ask me that one more time? <laughs> sure. Well, let, let's let's focus it in specifically then on the um, suicide piece. You know, kids are under a lot of pressure right now. Uh, there's a hesitation either to present at hospital or to accept people at hospital. Uh, and actually, even third sector community services are, are working very differently now. Uh, so is there a concern, do you think, for a spike in suicide uh, as things start to open back up again and as we move forward? I think there is a concern about what will happen uh, in the future once things start opening up, uh, because a lot of, as I was saying earlier, a lot of mental health difficulties have kind of gone under the radar and young people haven't been presenting uh, to services in the way that we would have liked them to. So one of the things we're trying to do in the National Health Service in the UK is get the message out there, please do present to your GP, your general practitioner, your CAM service, your paediatrician, etc. Uh, people sometimes are actually... Uh, have clinic slots available because more than they normally would and some of the waiting lists are actually shorter than normal at the moment because people aren't presenting. So, so the message we'd like to get out there is please do seek help when you need it. Don't feel that you have to wait until this pandemic is over. Dr. John Golden is a consultant psychiatrist uh, in London, England. He's the vice chair of the Child and Adolescent Faculty for the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. Dr. Golden, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Mark. 
You've been listening to the Living Well Podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan Project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well Podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. 